Welcome to this week's edition of Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our guest today, just want to throw out that we do have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider dropping us a dollar a month there. Or if not, maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. Since we're doing a Sterner-focused episode, we can say something like down with the law again, if you'd like, and we'll give you a shout out on the following week's episode. But today, Taylor and I are happy to bring you Elmo Fighten. We're going to look at his piece titled Ethics of the Care for the Brain, Neuroplasticity with Sterner, Malibu, and Foucault. But uh, Elmo, thanks so much for taking the time to sit and chat with us today. And welcome to the happy hour as well. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm super excited. I'm super excited to talk about Sterner in general, and especially this piece, because I'm starting to develop a, what, what I think is a relatively new reading of Sterner mm-hmm. through the conceptual apparatus of the life sciences. And um, where I get that from is that I'm a PhD student in philosophy, but I don't work on Sterner primarily. I work on a German-speaking biologist called Jakob von Uxkel, who worked in the at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. And his ideas are being taken up in different fields. One of them is embodied cognitive science, which mm-hmm. is also what I what I work on. So I try to uh, marshal some of these resources in order to give a new reading of Stirner. And the title, interestingly, the title of the paper is a little bit misleading, almost false advertising. If one <laughs> wanted to be uncharitable. Because clickbait, some right? People, yeah, it's clickbait. <laughs> some people think it's about care ethics because it says ethics of, of the care. But yes. um, it's, not a, it's not about care ethics. It's just a reference to Foucault's ethics of the care for the self. Uh, I, just I, put, I put brain in there instead. And then one of the other things that is weird and interesting about the paper is that in developing this new reading of Stirner, I came up with ways of explaining central concepts that he has, like property, for example, using these different ideas from biology or cognitive science. And um, I ended up spending so much time explaining how I generally understand Stirner that I didn't really go into that much detail here about the brain or neuroplasticity, which is also exciting because I think that I have a lot of ideas left that didn't make it into this piece. Right. Hopefully I can write another one, which will have more things on self-organization in general um, Mm -hmm. and especially also sort of interesting takes on how the brain works that I think are useful for thinking through Stirner's account of uh, the creative nothingness and also this idea that we can be self-positing and self-dissolving at every moment. So I think that there are sort of these central key terms in Stirner that when you read them either just by itself or you read it in the context of the young Hegelians, some of that sounds like he's... uh, a megalomaniac he says he's, you're the center of your world and you're yes. the owner of your world or they sound like he's just um over vastly overestimating his abilities to uh, control his own life 
this was short, sort of a brief introduction into how I try to approach Sterner. Yeah. I also have um, a different way to tell the story of why I think the life sciences are interesting and important for continental philosophy and for like uh, leftist theory. Definitely want to come back to this, specifically your point about Sterner not necessarily being a megalomaniac, especially in light of Von School's notion of the Umwelt. So I do mm -hmm. want to come back to that and we can kind of just anticipate. But we always do like to start with kind of your origin story. Do you want to sort yeah. of tell us, you mentioned a little bit before we started, but you want to like tell us a little bit about how you kind of got interested in philosophy, cognitive science, some of these thinkers too, even your, your mm -hmm. encounter with Sterner and Fanuc School? Yeah, sure. So my, my Batman villain origin story, <laughs> I was, um, I studied English in undergrad and a minor in cognitive science. And then I did a master's in cultural studies and got increasingly interested in the theoretical parts of that and especially the sort of leftist theory. And I started working on what I thought was going to be a dissertation about Sterner and post-anarchism because I was also really interested in Deleuze and Foucault and so on. And there were people at that time already making this link. So post-structuralist anarchism is something that happened mostly since the 90s and into maybe beginning or mid of the 2010s. And I think it has sort of gotten less from there, but there were a bunch of very interesting and exciting ideas. And part of it was that the post-anarchists thought that in the 19th century, most anarchism had ideas about humanity or humans that were essentialist and some of the theoretical tools that they got from French philosophy from the 60s and 70s helped them criticize some of these notions that traditional anarchism was founded on and then since then other people have questioned whether they were really this essentialist and so on but the basic impulse was very fruitful and interesting to combine French thought with with an anarchist political project or an anarchist understanding of the state and society and Stirner played like a weird and special role in this constellation because some of his ideas already in the 19th century and before anarchism really became a social movement, he was making critiques of conceptual structures like humanism and liberalism and socialism that resonate strongly with French post-structuralist thought and in a way anticipated some of the insights that we get from these thinkers. So I, I was very positive about that. and. Um, I still am very interested in it, but I began to realize at a certain point that I think some things about Deleuze and Foucault and Derrida don't re really allow you to explore the full extent of what Sterner is doing because Sterner thinks that he can leave language or that you as a living, breathing and embodied can fundamentally change your relationship to language. And there are certain like the, the normal orthodox readings of a lot of French thought assume that the kind of structures of meaning and the conditions for meaning making that are put in place mm -hmm. and that you encounter as an individual, they are larger than you, they pre-exist you, and your ability to self-determine your relationship to them is extremely limited. And Stirner is a lot more optimistic than that. And I began at that point to think that maybe there, there might be other ways of reading Stirner that could be an even better fit for sort of his sensibilities and what he's trying to tell us. I knew already there was something about the body. I was reading Gestalt Therapy, the first book, Excitement and Growth in the Human Personality. It's from the 50s, and they got their idea of embodiment from Wilhelm Reich, interestingly, and his idea <laughs> nice. of a character armor. So he had, the idea, yeah. Yeah, he had the idea that something like psychological blockages or 
factors in our psyche that we cannot get rid of and that we are stuck with are manifest in our muscles, basically, and the way we move our bodies. That kind of, it's kind of stuck with me. And I stopped working on that PhD project and just worked a normal job. But that different way of trying to make sense of Sterner was sort of gestating. And then later, when I started reading into embodied cognitive science and I started reading Maurice Merleau-Ponty, I realized that a lot of the resources from there were super good for explaining Stirner and explaining him in a way that you can move away from these like very long-standing and kind of painful debates with Marxists who will <laughs> repeat the same. I mean, a lot of the criticism that you get is is always the same and it's kind of the conversation isn't moving forward. I'm not saying that the Marxists are necessarily like wrong about what they're saying, but it's just not very fruitful. So when uh, the idea is that individualism is bad, you have to think about the social instead. And I think for most problems, thinking about the social conditions is more important than thinking about yourself and about the individual. But there's also sort of a lack of fear. This has led to something like a blind spot in leftist theory for the individual. And I think this is a, it's interesting. There's a book by Wolfgang Esbach. He was, he's a retired sociology professor from Germany, but he wrote his dissertation on Stirner's influence on the genesis of historical materialism in what later became the German ideology, where he calls Stirner the evil fairy at the crib <laughs> of historical materialism. But he okay. also says that, that Marx and Engels were so focused on exercising any trace of Stirner's views from their new theory and they caulked the theoretical building that they were constructing against subjective experience, for example, or and against any appeal to the agency of a single individual uh, that yeah. is taking control of their own lives. And this created what, what Esbach calls neuralgic points in sort of classical Marxist theory and an inability to deal with individual subjects in a way that um, is satisfying and uh, adequate. To me, that's very, very interesting because I, around the same time, I got into embodied cognitive science and I was still not in grad school then. I also got really interested in leftist biology, by which I mean like Levins, Levantin, and Gould, who okay. have these very important critiques of um, IQ research and they show how it's bad science and racist. But also they have important critiques of, for example, genetic determinism in general. And I just had this mind equals blown moment when I learned about <laughs> some, not even that complex stuff, but like some stuff about genetics mm -hmm. and uh, developmental biology that just shows that the this cartoonish idea that your genome is a computer program that determines, for example, how your brain will be wired. All of that is completely wrong. And right. the worldview that the right-wingers are building on that is evil and wrong. But also, I think it's very important for the left to be able to encounter and push back against the right-wingers on the battlefield of the life sciences. So like the only person who can stop a bad guy with a little bit of science knowledge <laughs> is, a, is a good guy with a little bit more science knowledge. I like that. I like that. That's sort of like, I got very interested in this general combination of leftist theorizing and the life sciences and social sciences as well. But I felt like, especially in this context, there wasn't an account of the individual and what I was trying to do with my new reading of Sterner in part was trying to provide leftist theorizing with an account of the individual that is informed by the life sciences. Interesting anecdote, when I did that, I came up with the term material subjects, and then I Googled it to see whether someone has scooped it, which indeed was the case because Adrian Johnston uses that yes. to talk about his project. 
I really like his work. And it's interesting because in some ways he's trying to do something that is so remarkably similar to what I'm doing, but also it's very different in that his, the position from which he starts is just so different because he starts not from Stirner, but from Marx. And right. then also from Hegel and Lacan, which gives him sort of a different approach to how concepts work, the place that concepts have in our lives as humans, and also the place that concepts have in our, in our theorizing and right. how we will sort of negotiate their relationship in our but he's very much open to the sciences that you're you're grappling with. He's one of the thinkers that takes this is kind of Chiesa's point was that Johnston has gone further than almost any other uh, sort of psychoanalytic type starting point to really embrace this conversation, this dialogue with the life sciences. I think that's super important. And uh, so him and Malabu, I think, are the two Ooh. thinkers that I look up to most in terms of this, what some people call continental naturalism or post-continental naturalism. And I'm not sure whether what I'm doing with Stern is exactly that, but I think it's super important to engage with that. And I think the precise way in which we use life sciences for continental philosophy, it's difficult and very important to like think about that more. And also, I don't have a solution for that, even for my own work. But Sometimes when I read something that I don't fully agree with in uh, Malabu or Johnson, I think it's definitely it would be worthwhile to engage with it more and try to like actually write on that because I think there's a certain kind of conversation that should be happening more where the kind of people that I engage with in philosophy of biology or philosophy of cognitive science, I don't think that almost none of them are at a point yet where they can some of them have read like a book review of a Malabu or a Johnston book. Right. But most of them aren't at a point where they can like engage this work in a way that is the correct mixture of like charitable and critical, because I, I think see, that there, I are, there are points where we want to be more careful about what's going on or more just like continue the conversation and find out more about how these concepts from very different uh, intellectual traditions actually latch up and connect. Yeah. But because of the way that like academic training works. The compartmentalization, right? Sometimes. Yeah. I mean, people are compartmentalized both in terms of their skill set because you are, people yeah. try to make you become an expert in the topic of your dissertation, basically. Right. And it's unlikely that people will be trained in both continental philosophy and the life sciences or philosophy of the life sciences. And mm -hmm. then also, even if you're, if, you know, if you have the knowledge to do that, there are also social factors that make it that sometimes sort of uh, limit the scope of possible responses that you will have because like responding mm -hmm. in certain ways to these thinkers will make your academic social environment perceive you in certain ways. Let's yeah. like, put it carefully and sort of vaguely. <laughs> but, um, no, I get, I get it. Yeah. That's funny. I was, uh, I was actually going to say that I think your project really reminds me, I think it's kind of simpatico with something like Guattari would totally be in, into this kind of thing. And I'm not sure if you even know Elmo much about Guattari's work with like bird ethology. Like, I think that's an aspect where he kind of links up with the life sciences a little bit that might be a way of kind of enriching what your project is kind of focusing on. I didn't necessarily put this in our um, bullet points here for questions, but I was kind of curious if you could elaborate because I recall a while back we were kind of discussing. You had a kind of uh, critique of this kind of neo-Hegelian renaissance, which I think you were sort of gesturing towards with Malibu and, and Johnston. But I don't know if there's if you had anything else as far as that goes, as far as your, your read on that beyond what you've already said at all. If so, please. Um, yeah, that's thanks. I mean, both of those are very interesting points. I definitely haven't read enough Grattari, and I'm 
always super excited when I realized how much more of my life I can just fill with <laughs> cool stuff I haven't read yet. And of course, uh, right? Yeah, exactly. Especially then there's another connection, which I think will be super fruitful if I ever have time to do that, which is um, Guattari on semiotics. And yeah. then there's some, I think Derrida has written specifically on biosemiotics, unless I'm mistaken. There are some seminars. Yes. And someone I know has recently published on that. In my sort of day job, when I work on UXCO, there's a whole field since the 90s called biosemiotics. Yes. And I also haven't worked on that enough because this the basic approach, which is to interpret all biological processes as processes of meaning making. And mm-hmm. they are a lot, uh, they're strongly influenced by Peirce's semiotics, which right. also would require some like investment of time and energy for me to actually get into yeah. that. And <laughs> there's a lot, there's a, there's a lot sort of Peirce out there. <laughs> but I is basically there's a lot of semiotics going on in partial overlap with the things I'm interested in that I have been neglecting and that I need to eventually grapple with. And it's not just semiotics, but it's even like language in general, maybe partly because of my sort of experience in the master's in cultural studies, I just got burnt out on language a little bit. And then I got excited to think about other things like embodiment and subjective experience. And especially in in how, how can we think about these things in a way that doesn't foreground language or that doesn't take language as given as the sort of necessary and unavoidable medium for everything to exist in, I will have to return to language more. And even uh, reading and writing about French philosophy more is is a kind of like return for me because I was trying to get away from that for a while or just focus on other things. But I still think that Whenever I see connections between fields that I that I've been reading separately, it's like a super enriching experience. And the, but that also means that my output is all over the place and uh, <laughs> looks kind of weird. So this is good. Before we kind of go further into the life sciences, specifically your background on von Uck School um, and how you read Sterner in terms of not just dealing with spooks on an ideological level, but even on an embodied level, which I think anticipates the discussion we have on the Umwelt. Do you want to say maybe a few words in connection to what Coop asked about this neo-Hegelian renaissance in terms of Stirner's kind of like Guattari is always, I always get the questions about Guattari. Why, why is Guattari always kind of this strange figure that's, that's almost obscured, sometimes dropped out of the D and G, the G drops out. Yeah. He, he never really, he's kind of a pariah figure like Sterner, but obviously with different, for different reasons. And, and maybe uh, in a certain way, it's just a slight parallel and analogy, but do you want to talk about Sterner's kind of, I don't want to say problematic status, but mm-hmm. his, he's almost this uh, mysterious figure, right? Yeah. It's weird that um, the relation. So I'm still very much working on understanding Hegel. Like I'm in a reading group on the phenomenology of spirit right now. <laughs> yeah. But also like alongside that, I got, um, I got excited about sellers yeah. two years ago. And then the whole like Pittsburgh Hegelian stuff. When I think about neo Hegelianism, I think about uh, McDowell and Brandon and then uh, the Johnson and Malibu are sort of a different flavor, I guess. And I honestly haven't really grappled with the, uh, the question of what role Hegel plays and how they read the life sciences enough. There's a way in which I'm excited about Hegel, which goes in a, a little bit beyond that or in a, in a third direction. And it's kind of wild. So the stuff in embodied cognitive science that I'm, they're like different flavors, but the one that I'm closest to is called inactivism. And it's the idea that there is a life mind continuity. So if we want to understand the basic 
structure of a mind or the basic logic of how minds works and the, the concepts that are at the heart of any successful science of the mind, we have to also understand how life works. So the way yeah. that goal-oriented action, for example, in organisms is a sort of key ingredient for our understanding of what it means to cognize. And then the sort of conceptual core of that is an account of living beings as self-organizing and the original sort of the classical term for that is autopoiesis. Yes. And um, one thing that fascinates me about inactivism, and they've developed critiques of this original autopoiesis and uh, Ezekiel Di Paolo is one of the most important inactivist thinkers. He explicitly frames his development of inactivism as dialectical. Okay. And considers himself a Marxist and draws on Marxist thinkers and so on in his newer books, which is very cool and exciting. But I think there's something, there are some more questions to be asked about the status of dialectics as a sort of method for cognitive science, which is how he, how he puts it. And that's exciting, but also we all know how difficult Hegel is and how much is going on there. So a lot of time could be spent sort of contextualizing what's going on there because there's a certain kind of in which they use dialectics a sense in which they use dialectics that is like the dialectics of nature uh -huh. where he says that the basic self-organization of a living being is comprised of two processes that negate each other in the short term which one is the process of self-individuation and uh, closing the boundary so a single cell organism for example has to maintain its own boundary and it closes itself off from the environment and this process of closing off is the way that it exists as a unit or as an individual, but also has to open itself to the environment. So it has to open itself to flows of matter and energy in order to be able to keep all these processes going, including right. the processes of closing off. So you have this simultaneous, two simultaneous processes that are contrary to each other. And in the short term, their results negate each other or they contradict each other. But in the medium term, they are necessary for the system to keep existing which is, interestingly, it's this very same schema of, of dialectics in nature that Lewins and Levontin use in the dialectical biologist. And one of their examples is the co-evolution of predator and prey, where the gazelle gets faster, the lion gets faster. And these processes, if you look at the population numbers, these two processes have uh, opposed outcomes, right? So the gazelles getting faster will mean fewer lions, more gazelles, right, yeah. and the other way around. But in the medium term, these two processes also stabilize the ecology because they sort of cancel each other out. And then in the long term, what happens is that this dialectical system, which is the ecological system that has both lions and gazelles, and they are evolving, there's something like a virtual variable that gets consumed or depleted in the long term and eventually might lead to the breakdown of the system, which is the evolvability of these two species. So there might be like just physiological constraints on how fast a gazelle can get. And right. then when you hit when you hit that limit, depending on the the point at which this limit is reached, or whether one of the two processes can keep going while the other stops, the system might break down. So there's this kind of there's a kind of dialectics of nature, which is purely like a third person scientific description of a system from the outside, and then you interpret the processes as dialectical. But then of course, there's you're ignoring the whole question of reflexivity and really the life of a concept and so on that i think comes out very well for example in adorno's introductory lectures on dialectics and um some of that i think is going on in de paulo as well but it's not clear like how these two perspectives are related exactly and i haven't really done enough work on that so i think that hegel is 
coming back in ways that are relatively visible when you think about Pittsburgh Hegelianism or, or also within continental naturalism. But there's also a lot of Hegel in the debates that are thematically linked to this, but where it's less visible and like there's a lot more Hegel around the corner, basically, is my feeling. <laughs> yeah. And one thing that is super cool is that trends in Hegel scholarship, like Karen Eng's book on the Hegel's concept of life. Yeah, yeah. I was going to bring that really, up. Yeah. That is for, foregrounds the importance for Hegel of the second half of Kant's third critique and Kant's account of natural purposes and self-organization in biology. And um, this whole story about Kant bringing the term self-organization into biology, uh, into philosophy and so on, is part of how inactivists tell the story of their field. So it's part of the mythology of inactivism, and it's also part of the actual arguments that they make. But I'm very interested in not just like, I'm interested in the conceptual puzzles, but I'm also interested in how different thinkers and groups of thinkers form their own identities in relationship to different fields like life sciences and, and German idealism and stuff like that. So the role that Kant's third critique played in in activism, but also in these uh, readings of Hegel, is super interesting to me. And I think there just there are a lot of very exciting connections that are sort of beginning to be made, which makes me wish I understood Hegel. But you know, here we are. <laughs> gosh, I was going to say too that I mean, Simone Doan might be someone who you should look into, to, which Taylor could speak to more accurately or more robustly than I could as far as like individuation is concerned and all that. So that might be something to look into as well to kind of enrich this project that you're undertaking. I think that might be a really good way to kind of connect the sort of life science to the philosophy machine, if you will. Yeah, I was just thinking about Simon Doan and and, and Von Uck School could really, they really complement each other and you could see the respect Deleuze gives them, for example. That is another super, I feel like your uh, your instincts are super on point here because Simon Doan is actually, so when I, I can tell this of like a little personal anecdote way. Yeah. Uh, before I started grad school in 2019 in Cincinnati, I went to a conference, actually two conferences in Spain, okay. in San Sebastian or Donostia, which is in the Basque country. And it's okay. one of the hubs of not just inactivism, but also there's a sort of parallel literature where people talk about self-organization in almost identical terms, or they very much pursue the same project but they don't think they're doing cognitive science, they're doing biology, so they talk about biological autonomy and so on. These conferences were super, super cool and enriching, and I met amazing people there. One of the people I met is Emilien Dereclen. He just defended his PhD a few weeks ago, but he works, his PhD is on Simondon and inactivism or inaction. Interesting. He has a paper from 2019 called Simondon and inaction, the articulation of life, subjectivity, and techniques. That's especially interesting to me because he draws not just on Simon Don's account of individuation, but also on the sort of philosophy of technology angle. I have to read more Simon Don. Okay. That's on my to-do list, which is very long. <laughs> of course, tell. of course. But <coughs> also uh, Ezekiel Di Paolo has started using Simon Don and mm-hmm. referring to him in the last book, but also there's an earlier book from 2017 where they already reference Simon Don on individuation, but it's really interesting to do this kind of scholarship and get, uh, because what you're supposed to do as a scholar, right? You're supposed to look at the actual arguments and try to reconstruct people's views. What did Newton really think about forces <laughs> or objects or whatever? And right. you come up with these very clever interpretations. But really, when you when you just read stuff because you're interested in, you also pick up on vibes. And yeah. not, <laughs> not, everything, not everything is like a coherent argument. And when people refer to thinkers 
sort of in a single footnote or just like in a few sentences, you get a feeling for how they're related to the project and you get a feeling for the potential that is there, but it's not always like there's no fact of the matter yet about the precise role that this thinker will play for a certain project. And I think for Simon Dorr, it's probably still an ongoing process which like unfolds his potential for embodied cognitive science. And it's, it's definitely very, very interesting. I'm excited. Yeah, specifically with relation to some of what you were kind of elaborating earlier when you were discussing in activism, this notion of sort of closing off you know, sort of to the inenvelt, but what also opening up, you know, uh, to, to flows of energy, potential energy to the annex milieu in the pre-individual milieu, as Simon Don would call. I was thinking very much on Cooper's lines that this would be kind of a fruitful place mm-hmm. for, for Simon Don to, to supplement some of those arguments. And to move forward with, with Scherner, the way that your paper started, I thought was, was really, it, it kind of hooked me immediately with, with Feuerbach sort of mocking Sterner and probably falling into a trap by saying, you know, like you, you claim to be able to call into question all of these fixed ideas, but don't you have a masculine brain? Do you want to talk about mm-hmm. this moment in Sterner's critics and how you start off your paper on neuroplasticity? Oh yeah. Yeah, sure. That's super, um, that's super interesting to me. So Sterner's critics <laughs> is a text that Sterner wrote in response to, uh, I think three of his earliest critics. So he only wrote one book, which came out in late 1844. It's dated to 45, but it made a little bit of a splash. And the context <laughs> is that in the in the 1840s, people who were called young Hegelians were yeah. discussing. They were all trained in Hegel's philosophy. Hegel had died, and then they were just sort of trying to figure out where to go from there. And they were discussing Hegel's philosophy and how to move beyond Hegel's system <laughs> in the context of an atmosphere of political upheaval yeah. in German. This period is called Vormärz, which means pre-March, because in March of 1848, there would be revolutions and rebellions. And um, what Stirner was doing was saying that his friends, and he was part of a specific group of young Hegelians who were called the Free Ones. Yeah. And they met in two or three wine bars in Berlin where they would get very drunk and yell at each other about philosophy, as one does. Uh, <laughs> He said that his his colleagues and his friends were still pious people. So yeah. this development started with a critique of religion, an influential book called The Life of Christ by Strauss, and then also Feuerbach's The Essence of Christianity were super influential in shaping these young Hegelian debates into a critique of received Christian views. And um, Feuerbach had said that basically the attributes, all these positive attributes that we assign to God are actually attributes of the human species that have become alienated. And we sort of transpose them into the heavens and then feel bad about ourselves and feel like we are these lesser creatures that right. have to look up to God and also bow down to him. And Sterner said, well, that's that's all very, very good. But the problem is that the new ways of thinking that you're coming up with, humanism and liberalism and socialism, you're retaining the exact same psychological structure in which there's a normative ideal that you think is more important than you yourself are as a living, breathing individual. And you put yourself in the service of this ideal or this norm. Right. You think that this norm, these concepts and norms explain who you are as a matter of fact, and also as a matter of um, destiny and norms. So 
it is not just that you are a Christian, but it's your job to be Christian. It's not just that you are a citizen, but it's your job to be a citizen. You are a man. And it's also, this puts a demand on you to behave in a manly way. And Stirner says, instead of rejecting any of these individual items of content, like these contents of ideologies, I'm just going to reject the whole apparatus, right. which leads to me self-subjugating and which leads to me participating in my own oppression and exploitation uh-huh. within these systems. And what's sort of new about my reading is that this has been recognized sort of as a critique of language and the way that the language of these normative ideals and sort of the linguistic practices in which they are embedded are the point where Stirner attacks them. So he develops, for example, his the word der Einzige in the title, which is the unique one in English. Right. He, tra- he calls it an empty phrase and he says it has no content. It doesn't say anything about you. So he's trying to develop a new way of speaking that is intentionally empty and it is intentionally sort of moving away from any content or any uh, representation that would uh, create these expectations for you. So he's definitely, a lot of what he's doing is about language and a way to rely less on language for the way you inhabit your life. But I think the role of the body hasn't really been appreciated enough. So now this was interesting. This this yeah. is definitely interesting. And I want I want to hear more about this specifically. And you use as the jumping off point this kind of essentialist argument from Feuerbach that isn't your brain masculine? Isn't it mm-hmm. determined? Isn't it essentially a sort of masculine brain because you're assigned male at birth or whatever you want to call it now. And doesn't that kind of determine the structure of your ideas? Doesn't that, you know, it's like a priori phallogocentrism, right? Yeah. In, so, a, in a sense, or like even to go to the Freud or the non-relation stuff that we've been kind of banding about for the last couple of weeks in terms of like the guilted helplessness against the, nature and sort of that whole discussion. Mm-hmm. But anyways, I was just fascinated when I read that because I had been reading a little bit about neuroplasticity and I didn't expect someone like in the middle of the 19th century to appeal to the brain as the sort of rock bottom. There are some, there are some moves you can make like in a discussion that are supposed to like end debate where you, it's like a gotcha moment where you think, yeah. well, surely you can't disagree with me on this. Like surely this is rock bottom. Like this is where you have to turn around and go somewhere else with your argument because right. no one would disagree with this. And uh, for Feuerbach, there's this interesting combination of two things. One of them is masculinity and the other one is the brain. And this the sacred this, organ, this, as he calls it, right? Doesn't he call yeah, it something this, like this? Your most sacred organ. I think, yeah. <laughs> right. And this combination, the idea that like your gender is the truth of yourself, but your brain is also the truth of the self. Right. And the two are linked. Mm-hmm. That was super interesting to me because it's the, to me, it seems like this is a perfect, like a resonance in time of the discourse we get nowadays about yeah. combination of evolutionary psychology and uh, neurodeterminism. Mm-hmm. So the idea, there's a lot of cool literature out there uh, criticizing the idea of, for example, male and female brains and the idea that, for example, mental disorders are just caused by something in your brain with the implication being that what is going on in your brain is sort of causally shielded from society, which is, of course, nonsense. So the way that neurodeterminists think about the brain is as if the structure of the brain and its functions are purely determined by your genes. Instead of thinking of the brain as something that grows over your lifetime and that is shaped by your interactions with the world, which is what actually happens. 
So the brain shapes how you act in the world, but the brain is also shaped by how you act in the world and how the world acts on you. Right. There's a funny uh, way of illustrating that, which is that there was this study. I'm not sure how good the study is, but there's a study that get, often gets cited about the brains of taxi drivers in, I think, London, where they did. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, I've heard this. They, they saw that one area of the brain is a lot larger than it is for the normal population because they have this, there's this different cognitive activity, right, of taxi driving, which maybe nowadays it's not quite the same anymore that we have a, right. a cell phone that tells you where to go. But back when taxi drivers actually knew all the streets, I see. Navigational I see. activity was apparently, you could see the effect right. of that on the screen, on the brain scan. It's cartography brain. You can imagine, <laughs> it is cartography brain. You can imagine but, like uh, pirates and, and you know ship captains having something yeah. like that. <laughs> but I think it very nicely shows you that the structure of your brain is not yeah. merely the passive expression of right. some biological essence because we wouldn't want to say that people are born as a taxi driver, right? You right. become a taxi driver <laughs> yeah, by, right. by driving yeah. a taxi. And I think that if there is such a thing as a male and female brain, as like a a pattern that shows up in a right. imaging study, then these patterns were created through the lives that people led right. as right. women and as men in a certain society, right? So whatever brains we are, whatever brains it is that we are generating scientific knowledge about, these brains are the product of lives lived in specific social circumstances, you know? They're not just... It's not some essential biologist program. Yeah, I, I, the way that I interpreted your the response that Schoener had was basically you're just trying to move from sort of the abstract ideal of man that you've held over me now to this abstract idea of masculinity that again you're trying to subjugate me to. Is that kind of Schoener's move to say like yeah. this is this is just another fixed idea to try to to try to like pin me down and to this alien essence that actually doesn't determine me, but the other way around. Is there some way? Yeah, to this is yeah. exact. That's precisely the structure of Stern's argument. So he says, he says that in back when we were all Christians, like five years ago, basically, <laughs> um, we would we would go to church and then we'd feel bad because we masturbated or we did something else that's forbidden according to the rules of the church. And now we are feeling bad because we're doing something that makes us a bad humanist or a bad liberal. And you can uh, apply that to all kinds of different identities. You can say, well, you feel bad because you're a bad leftist. You said something, you're, you read Carl Schmidt or whatever it is you did, right? <laughs> or you're, uh, you paint your nails, so you're a bad male. Or like, yep. depending on your social circles, maybe you like sports too much and then you're a jock and you're a bad guy. I don't know what like you <laughs> yeah, feel like, but right. there are th the structure of this kind of internalized normativity is pretty neutral to like content and to also political identities. So they're like leftist versions of making yourself feel bad as well. And Stirner, right. there's this interesting moment because Stirner writes against humanism, but he clarifies instead of writing against the human, he could also have written against the inhuman. Yes. But strategically, Feynman was more important to like make clear that he's distancing himself from these like very pious do-gooders. And if he'd written against the inhuman instead, it would have sounded like he's just wringing his hands about bad people, <laughs> right. which was, isn't the point of, of his project. Right. That makes sense. That makes sense. And I think that what's interesting to move further from this, this dispute about sort of the masculine brain that he has with Sterner or with Feuerbach, that doesn't necessarily mean, though, that Sterner doesn't have any 
theory about embodiment or how our, mm-hmm. our thoughts and our fixed ideas and our spooks and our and all of this baggage we carry with us becomes embodied. Do you want to, this is part of the, yeah, sure. the, the unique part of your reading of Sterner is, is, that is true. pointing out places in the uniqueness property where embodiment that where the body, it does suffer from the, from the effects of whatever we want to call it, these ideological yeah. ideas. And I or, think, uh, thank you for reminding me. I think that is actually, uh, that's true. That's one of the most important parts of the paper. And it's also, I think, a good way to illustrate how we can move away from like the classic debates about Stirner and Marx, because right. one of the complaints that Marx had was that what Stirner and the other young Hegelians were doing, and this is in the in the text that would later be published as the German ideology, he says that basically these people are only worrying about ideas, and uh, Marx draws this comparison to someone, a drowning man who thinks he would be fine he doesn't need to learn how to swim. The only thing that he needs to do is he needs to stop believing in gravity and then right. he wouldn't sink to the bottom, right? And it's this very harsh, bitter critique of people who focus on concepts too much. But <laughs> Sterner's critique of ideology, basically, he doesn't use the word, but I think that's what's going on there. Although it works a lot through a critique of certain ways of relating to language, it is also very, it very much goes beyond language as well. And one of the scenes where you can see that is Sterner describes a young woman lying in bed and then she gets horny, basically. So her breathing gets faster and her cheeks get, get red and flushed with blood. Right. And she, he has a very delicate way of putting it, but she uh, at least is about to start masturbating. And then she gets afraid for her soul because that's a sin. And instead she regains peace and is at rest again, but in a way that is very lifeless. So the blood uh, drains from her face and she becomes very still. Her breathing becomes shallow. And uh, it's nice. So Sterner describes how the effect of this self-policing. So she has internalized norms about who she is and who she's supposed to be, what she's supposed to do and what she isn't supposed to do. And now this internalized heteronomy is something that works on her through her own body. So it's not that she has conscious control of her breathing and conscious control of her blood flow, but like the effects of ideology that you have internalized, the way in which you police yourself isn't even exclusively conscious and it's not linguistic. It's not just that you think about yourself in certain ways, but your physiological reactions to the situations in which these norms come to bear on your behavior and your life force you into a path where your desires don't get realized and your desires basically get sacrificed on the altar of these ideological structures and the ideological injunctions. Yeah. I was going to say super egoic injunction is what I was kind of thinking. It is. That's a super good way of thinking about it. And it's interesting also because of course the super ego didn't exist yet when Stern was writing that. And, um, one other interesting figure who was influenced strongly by Stirner, but in a way that he sort of kept on the down low for the most part was Wilhelm Reich. And uh, there's interesting secondary literature about that, but it's, it's sort of uh, tangential, I guess, to this point. So this is the first half episode of the young woman who doesn't masturbate because she's afraid for a soul is how Stirner shows that ideology works on us through our bodies. Yeah. But he also thinks that our, what he calls insurrection He has this thing where he contrasts revolution with insurrection because he says revolutions aim at new arrangements. I don't want to be arranged in a different way. 
we want to arrange ourselves and not right. let ourselves be arranged any longer, which is where his ideas about free associations and sort of self-organized social relations come from. But this insurrection that he coins as a, as a counter term to revolution is something that he also describes as a bodily activity. So he says, like, you shrug your shoulders mm-hmm. and you uh, whoop. So you like let out this loud, joyous sound and take a deep breath and fill your lungs. And this allows you to throw off all these like dusty concepts of the past. And uh, it's very interesting to me. I think it's easy to have a deflationary reading of that where you think, well, this is kind of poetic and it just, he's just exp- like getting you in the mood for his critique of, <laughs> but I don't think that's what's happening. I think he actually means it. And that's why I'm interested in things like, well, in the paper I use Iron Marion Young because she has a great account where she uses a phenomenological perspective, but then has a critical turn on it. So in Husserl, he says that a basic relationship to the objects in our environment are mediated by the I can, which is to say that when I see a chair, I experience the chair as something I can sit down on. And this is an idea that also you can get from, it's present in other fields as well. There's something called affordance and embodied cognition, which plays the same roles, happens in Uxkul as well. And um, Iris Marion Young says, it's just as important and critically more important to think about the way in which we relate to the world through the I cannot. Right. we uh, there was I saw a great presentation that was called "Why Can't I Sit There," which was about affordance and racism. And I think it's super important to think about the way that ideology structures our experience through this lens of embodiment and the way that we relate to the world in terms of our bodily capacities. And that this is what I think is going on in Sterner as well, at least in a sort of as a germ like i I don't think it's fully developed but i think that it's definitely worth if reading sterner in these new contexts and i think there's a more interesting thing i mean at least for me personally it's more interesting to do that than to try to like find some very clever argument for why sterner should was right about something and marx was wrong or something like that but there are other there's some other resources which i only discovered Afterwards, there's a whole field called critical phenomenology, which I think is super cool. And the basic idea is that in classical phenomenology, Jack and Husserl, you use the techniques like the bracketing and all this stuff in order to try to find the essential structures of experience in general that are supposed to be sort of transcendental. They're like almost logical conditions on the structure of your experience. And the feminists and uh, people criticizing racism and other people in critical phenomenology are saying we can use the very same techniques, but instead we can also analyze structures of our experience that are historically contingent and uh, that are created and it can be recreated in different ways. Recreated mm-hmm. in terms of uh, exploitation and oppression. So basically the structures of racism and sexism and so on are present and accessible through the phenomenological method in sort of the same way as the eidetic structures that Husserl was going after. And I feel like if I manage to um, become literate in that literature, that might be a cool, <laughs> cool way to go as well. With the, I wanted to bring up, embodiment. this might be going backwards a little bit, but I just want to note for your Elmo, for your benefit or just enlightenment, or if that's even the case, Taylor, do you recall, was it Chiesa or Newman that had the, point about the uh the crocodile that was Chiesa. Like the, that was Chiesa. okay so 
he writes about how there's the determination of crocodilian sex is not linked to gene genomic mm-hmm. expression. It's like mm-hmm. something to do with some type of thermal. Yeah. The, the temperature of, of the eggs. When they yeah. Hatch. There's like a particular thermal range that would impact yeah, yeah, yeah. whether the different types of gametes or whatever the case is. So that's a good point. And that's just, there are many different examples like that, which basically show that the simplistic schema of the genome determining the phenotype is just not true. And there's an interesting sort of larger context to that. The, the Guardian just published an article which asks whether we need a new theory of evolution. And it describes sort of the conflict between what is called the modern synthesis, which was when uh, classical Darwinism was married to Mendelian insights into genetics, which were rediscovered in the early 20th century. And then there was sort of a problem where they didn't know. So the, the standard Darwinian story about evolution was highly gradualist. So the idea that, for example, these finches on the Galapagos Islands, the beaks of beak of one bird would be like infinitesimally larger or smaller than than the one of the next bird, and the advantage that it conferred would also be very small, and you have this very slow gradual shift. And then the thing about the the peas and Mendel, where some of them are round and the other ones are just completely non-round, it introduces these discrete steps, which people thought might introduce a problem into the Darwinian story. And then they used clever math in order to show that in principle, it's still possible for these things to work together. And you got the modern synthesis, which do- completely dominated biology. Interesting. But there are many, many, many interesting examples for why this doesn't work like that. The story is not that easy. Cooper, you just had one. Another one that I like from Levantin is a reaction norm, which is a certain allele in a fruit fly will make it so that like the small A flies have larger wings than the large A flies, whereas the small A and large A are just the ways of naming the two alleles for locus or something. But if you breed the very same genetically identical flies in a room that is three degrees Celsius warmer, the effect is reversed. So like the very same allele that seemed to code for larger wings now codes for smaller wings. Interesting. It's just, um, it's just throws such a nice wrench into genetic determinism. Right. But what's interesting to me is that there's something happening. So the larger context is that people have been assembling basically all of these problems for the modern synthesis. And then some people have proposed what they call the extended evolutionary synthesis, which takes on board things like epigenetics or Evo Devo, which emphasizes the role of evolution of individual organisms in the development of individual organisms in evolution, sorry. But what's cool to me is that Part of this involved a shift where, like, for much of the 20th century, biologists would think about genomes or about populations, but they stopped thinking really hard about organisms. Yeah. So there used to be stronger traditions in embryology and development and so on that were really trying to grapple with a single organism and how it works as a whole and how it develops and so on. But the focus of biology as a field very much moved away from that in the 20th century. And then there's something that people call the return of the organism now. It's also the name of a research group in Bochum that is very cool. These concerns with the organism in biology, there are aspects of that that are sort of historical and look at historical figures, including Uxkull or people like Uxkull, which makes it very interesting to me. But it's also in an interesting way, it mirrors the concern that I had about leftist theorizing, right? Where you have a you have a dominant way of looking at things that just sidelines any concern for the individual subject. And I'm I'm hoping that what I'm doing isn't just like 
focusing exclusively on the individual instead, because I don't think that's very productive. But uh, hopefully I can uh, develop ways of getting into a constructive dialogue with perspectives that pay less attention to the individual now and sort of integrate some of these views. That'd be cool. I'm glad that we, we've turned to, to Oog School because you, you mentioned earlier that one of the main ways of dismissing Stirner seems to be to emphasize his kind of hyper-individualism and mm-hmm. even to the point of completely ignoring or dismissing his notion of a union of egoists, as he formulates it, which would not preclude sort of contingent sort of social formations that would at least be... This is like introducing finitude into institutions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as Guattari says, that's another way that Guattari and Sterner definitely coalesce there. You know, Guattari thinking of an institutional death drive where Mm -hmm. institutions, groups have the capability of change and metastability and even of dissociating if if they start to concretize in ways that eliminate the freedom of the individuals who initially joined together, you know, that you always have that mm-hmm. freedom to leave, as you kind of pointed out. And I, I guess that that this is where I think you're you're bringing in when you because when Scherner does say like he talks about the world as being mine, mm-hmm. uh, there is a sense in which it can be misread easily. And 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 I think that that's part of Marx's critique, right? When he sees the word eigentum and he thinks of property in terms of bourgeois property, which as you point out is completely, it's either a straw man or just a misreading, which I would like you to hear about too. But yeah. I guess the point being your move to bring in school and the Umwelt to explain what Sterner is talking about. Do you want to say a little bit about maybe that yeah. first and then we Thanks. can talk about property? Thank you for bringing me back on track with that one. That's a uh another key ingredient, so to speak, to this reading, which is that um, the title of the book in German is Der Einzige und sein Eigentum. And um, Eigentum means property. And in both German and English, the first association that people have is legal property, like something that you own. And for Stirner, that's not the case. But unfortunately, it's very natural to read it like that. Uh, Yeah, okay. uh, Even like with or without the Marxist backdrop. So Marx very much painted Stirner as like this petty bourgeois egoist who's just trying to like amass as much property as he can. He's just like trying to like, with his like grubby little hands, grab a hold of everything he can and like pull it towards him and like hold onto it very tightly. And that's not really what what he's trying to do. But instead, what he says when he says that the world is his property, he doesn't mean the world as in the physical universe, but he means the world as each individual experiences it. Right. And this is like, this is also a distinction that's central to Uxco, but it's very, um, there are a lot of uh, passages in Sterner that show that this is how he thinks about it, but also it's easy not to see it because he doesn't sort of systematically explain that, but he says that everyone lives in their own world. Like you live in uh, Taylor's world and I live in Elmo's world and so on. So like the, uh, world as we experience it is our own in an important sense in that I have my own experiences and you have your own experiences and I will never experience the world through your eyes, which is sort of neither metaphorically nor literally. And what Sterner then means when he says that you're the center of your world and the owner of your world, and you can take ownership of your world is just that normally in our day-to-day life, when we go about our business, the way we experience the world is colored and shaped by ideology in a way that 
basically Iris Marion Young's I Cannot from, from earlier. Right, right. Describes very well. It's that like you inhabit the world in a way that is already, it is already shaped by your assumptions about legality, your uh -huh. assumptions about what your social system will think of you if you behave in the wrong way, if you dress in the wrong way or whatever, like all of these internalized norms, they are sort of directly present to you in the way that you perceive the world. And in terms of the actions and the, the possible actions and also the impossible actions that you perceive. So you perceive the world as a place in this room is a room in which I cannot dress a certain way. This building is a building in which I'm not allowed to go in after a certain time and so right, on. Right. And this Schoener says that the world that you inhabit and experience is yours. And you can just in principle, you don't have to police your own behavior in this way. And because this project is, it's sort of like a, a little, you know, somewhere it's a little bit self-helpy almost. You don't have to internalize these norms. There are right. systems of oppression and exploitation in place, and you have been socialized into them, but you can do whatever it is in your power, whatever degree of plasticity you actually have. You can work on yourself in order to stop self-policing and self-limiting in these ways, and then increase the number of possibilities for action that you have in your world. And then, I mean, there will still be empirical constraints because of the cops and so on. But at well, least yeah. you don't have to be your own cop anymore. So you can get rid of the policeman in your own head. And then we'll worry about the real cops later. That's, that's sort that, of what he's doing. Yeah. That's Deleuze and Guattari, anti-Oedipus kind of territory too. This, yeah, yeah. That's the, also the, one of the yeah. resonances I felt. Yeah, it, it, that, that was something that came clear when you... Uh, just to turn to Deleuze for a short moment, because it does he does show up in a footnote in your paper on neuroplasticity, which I want to, mm -hmm. what I wanted to ask you about, you know, we can leave aside Deleuze's strange reading of Stirner as sort of dialectician and nihilist, which I mm -hmm. am convinced from your reading is, is a kind of a straw man, maybe not as a violent of a straw man as what Marx paints, but still a kind of mm -hmm. uh, a mischaracterization. And, you know, we can leave aside even anti-Oedipus, but I do like that you brought up this sort of calling into question the cop in our head, right? The fascism in ourselves, which even Foucault kind of makes very clear in the, in the preface to anti-Oedipus. But I wanted to ask you about Deleuze's own use of von Uck school in Spinoza's mm -hmm. Practical Philosophy. And I wanted to know more, if you can go into it, if not, we can sort of bracket this question, but I wanted to know a little bit more about your way of pointing out that the resonances between Stirner and Von Uchtel that you're yeah. looking at with the Umwelt and the sort of mindness, or I was proposing a translation for Coop the other day of Igentum as owndom, kind of like mm -hmm. kingdom. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. But like just to get away from the property question, but I, I wonder, you were kind of trying to tease out Deleuze having a slightly different reading of, yeah. of Uke's school than, than you would see as resonating with, with Scherner. Do you want to say a word about yeah, that? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, for sure. That's good. It's important. And in general, for Uke's school, there are different readings. And it's cool because a lot of philosophers really liked Uke's school. So yeah. Uke's school's central claim was that animals aren't just complex machines, but they're living subjects. And each mm -hmm. living subject experiences its own world. 
and um, Heidegger cited him a bunch. Then there are other right. in Germany in like philosophical anthropology, like Scheler and Klesner, who are slightly less well known, but also did interesting things with Uxkirl and Kassira. So there's a German line and a French line, which has uh, Maurice Meloponti, importantly, in his later yes. work, but also Deleuze. Lacan even has a little bit about Uxkirl, though I can't tell you right now what, what exactly he says. But one thing that's interesting to me is that almost everyone in philosophy in the 20th century who wrote about Uxkul rejected at least one thing that Uxkul believed, which is that his account of Umwelt, where every living creature experiences only its own Umwelt and no other Umwelt. So it's in principle impossible to have access in a strong sense to the Umwelt or right. the ex- world of experience of a different subject. This like extreme privacy, in a sense, is something that every... Um, let's say most of the philosophers who read and liked Uxkul wanted to reject for humans, and they wanted an exception for humans. It's more prevalent in the German tradition to say humans are just different because we have language and symbolic culture right, and so on. Right. Construct a sort of exception for humans. And in France, something that especially Deleuze does is to just generally have a view of Umwelt as more open. And there are, I identified, so my own reading of Uxkul says that there are importantly two different perspectives in his own work, where one of them is an external perspective on a subject, which is scientific. So you, you're trying yeah. to investigate mind and life, and you look at an animal from the outside and measure it and investigate it. And then there's a the perspective from the inside, the first-person perspective that you have of your own life. And these function in very different ways. But I think the strong sense in which Umwelt is philosophically interesting, especially for subjective experience, is the first-person one. And that's also the one, I think, in which Uxkul helps us explain Stirner. And I think the other sense, the third-person sense, which is more about ethology as a science, I think it has more to do with what Deleuze is doing. In Deleuze's context, it gets more difficult because he's not excluding subjective experience. Well, he's not excluding experience, but he's it's in the context of his book on Spinoza or one of his books on Spinoza. And because he's taking a Spinozist perspective, questions about the privacy of a subject individual subject and its consciousness don't really occur in the same way that they yeah so these questions the question about like what is an individual consciousness and how is its experience private are i think central for uxkul and also in some way for sterner or at least for sterner sort of there's something about the experience of the individual that is very important and it's has existential implications and it has implications for like the dignity of how you exist and the, how you relate to yourself. It's like a dignity that's, it's not like a social dignity that we express in language, but it's more like almost a like very fundamental way of feeling your body and inhabiting your world. Maybe dignity isn't even the right word, but part of why I like and work on Sterner and Uxkul is that they, have very strong and uncompromising views on individual subjects and their experience. And I think Deleuze just has a perspective on the world that refuses to prioritize the individual subject. And I think part of it, there's some problem about the word subject where part of what Deleuze is rejecting is a specific history of how philosophers have conceptualized subjectivity. And that those are not commitments that I'm trying to take on board when I say subject. I'm just trying to like refer numerically to like a living. The unique. 
breathing unique one. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but there's something, I think basically what is going on there is that the limits of how accurately Uxkul's kind of umwelt can be integrated or portrayed in Deleuze's perspective, I think they are very similar to like how far you could get phenomenology into Deleuze's views. So I think the the boundary that you run up against when you try to, to think about Deleuze and phenomenology are very similar to like sort of the methodological problems of integrating Umwelt into Deleuze's view just because you have to prioritize the first person perspective right. in a certain sense if you want to do some of these things that I don't know enough about Deleuze, but I feel like that's not something that really takes place in a theory. And that's not a bad thing, or it doesn't, doesn't have to mean that you're never allowed to do that if you if you believe in what the list does. I at least I don't see like an easy way to really make them click around the question of subjective experience. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. And it uh, it seems to be, you know, this question that that still dogs philosophers from Descartes to Sartre and beyond, this question of a of a kind of refutation of solipsism. And, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, even with Sartre, he kind of, he's kind of like, well, there's obviously other egos, other, other individuals, like, you know, it's, it's almost this, this thing that, that is this thorn in the side that one has to just ignore whether one goes mm -hmm. through inner subjectivity or collective assemblages of enunciation as Deleuze and Guattari call it, or even what Simon Dome will talk about in terms of the trans individual, which is, of course, this movement that I think could be a productive valence for this interpretation of Stirner because the trans individual, it doesn't perceive subjects above and beyond them, kind of like God or man or these essences mm -hmm. that, of course, Stirner calls into, into question. It's more of this effective dimension of the sort of the pre-individual with the individuated that sort of, uh, it's hard to even talk about it as a beyond more than like an across that, that could, I think, be brought into play with the union of egoists. But I know that's beyond the purview. I'm just trying to think of ways in which perhaps, you know, we could um, we could kind of still think of Deleuze as bringing something interesting to these conversations and some of these other thinkers, specifically with Oops Cool. I'll leave that aside. That was I think that's of, super, yeah. super interesting. And I also definitely think that like Sterner's account of the union of egoists, as he yeah. calls it, which is like just him trying to think about very rudimentary forms of actually voluntary social organization how could they arise and what could they look like right I think that that's definitely like not nearly complex enough in that we have to what Stirner's focus is there is just trying to describe um, how entering into voluntary associations interacts with your freedom and your ability to own yourself where he's very explicit that like living in the society that you live in now in this sort of default condition where you you're just thrown into a nation state and then you internalize the norms that of course limits your freedom but voluntarily if you were part of a voluntary association that would also limit your freedom because part of what it is to associate is to behave in certain ways and not associate not behave in other ways he says there's no difference in that regard but the the real difference is that in the voluntary association, you are free to leave the association if you don't want to anymore. You're free to right. renegotiate the terms of your membership. And it's so interesting to me that this is kind of unrelated, but something I'm very passionate about. The way that people use the term social contract, to me, borders on gaslighting almost, because people talk about actually existing social arrangements, and then they call it the social contract. 
it's obviously not a social contract because I never sign any paperwork. You're thrown into yeah. it. And you're not, um, you're not in a position, even if there was paperwork, you would never be in a position where you actually are like uncoerced and you're really free to not sign on the dotted line. And there's some interesting things that I'm, some other stuff I'm working on is a critique of some versions of game theoretic cultural evolution where people use the term social contract even in book titles. There's a book called The Evolution of the Social Contract. And I think it's the title alone tells a story that is both technically false and also sort of dangerous because it creates a strong ideological effect of uh, suggesting that the social contract is something that really exists and also suggesting that it came about through this uh, quote unquote natural process of evolution which is not how we should try to explain actually existing and historical social arrangements. But um, it's a different question, but I think it's important to, maybe it gives like a sense that I'm not just, I don't think people should just think about individuals and not think about like history and societies and social processes and so on. Yeah, yeah. I think one thing that's interesting is that I think we should try to understand phenomena through concepts that are adequate to the scale of the phenomenon that we're looking at. So like, if you want to understand an individual, try to like use a lens and try to use concepts that are native to that scale or that emerge from that scale or that you find or construct on that scale. And don't, don't use like concepts that were developed to understand the national economy of a nation state. Right. Like understand why to like criticize your friends and their personal choices. Yeah, I think this is why Guattari is constantly revisiting this this tension between the the molar and the molecular mm-hmm. on the one hand, and then the abstract on the other, and how that can tip assemblages. But more to the point, I really liked how you crystallized this notion by saying the union of egoists is different, as you describe it, and voluntary associationism, etc., from society, which is this transcendent grouping into which we are thrown and with there is this myth of of a contract etc this this notion that you know stern is not against any sort of cooperation whatsoever in this hyper individualism like he's been castigated for but is against society as this abstract fixed idea that would prearrange individuals one thing that's interesting to me about the link between sterner and uxkel is that those are also i mean there probably are many more but Those are two examples of something that I think is relatively rare when a publisher puts out an edition of a book and includes a foreword or an afterword by someone who clearly thinks that the book is wrong and the thinker (laughs) in general is also wrong. So there's like the the standard Reklam edition of Stirner's book in German still has an afterword by a Marxist from the 70s who's just like basically saying like this is a bad way to think because you're not analyzing the relations of production within society. And it's like this Marxist song about this triangle is a very bad circle. I'm like, yeah, that's that's (laughs) that's not what we were doing. And then for Uxkill, it's interesting as well. There's an edition from the 50s in German, which has an introduction by uh, Josef Pieper, who was a Christian philosopher, I want to say. I don't know his work that well, but he pushes back against Uxkill because he says this idea that we only perceive and experience a world that is sort of generated by our own nervous system is false because we perceive the real world directly, but his direct realism is like neo-Thomist. It's really weird. Right, 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 right. I think that, that what I would maybe push back on for Sterner and school, and maybe this word isn't, isn't appropriate, but the notion that you know, we perceive the world from our perspective, as you said, from our own experiences, we have our umwelt, 
doesn't necessarily preclude aspects of sympathy and empathy, mm-hmm. right? I mean, like, even if Scherner's, I mean, he's not necessarily rejecting that too core. He's kind of saying that insofar as I empathize, I do it from my own interests, right? Yeah. And I think um, Sterner definitely is very positive about other people and love and all that stuff in some right. of the passages. And I think, but I think one thing that's interesting about his criticism and which is also important to note is that like thinking that you're like have being a humanist, for example, believing in love and empathy, thinking that you're one of the good guys. One of the problems about quote unquote normal politics where people have these identities and they conceive of themselves and their duties and rights in terms of these conceptual identities is that the other guys also think they're the good guys, right? And right. if you think about like abortion bans, for example, like the mis- let's call them misguided Christians who think that abortion is a sin and so on, and they want to ban all abortion, they also think that they're full of love and empathy. It's just like love and empathy for the fetus. Yes. And um, they think that they're the humanists and the good guys. And the because this conceptual structure of ideology is so flexible and also so like content neutral there's a problem where people like being part of conceiving of yourself within such a structure also gives you like a sense of security it's very nice to know who you are it's very nice to know what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do and it's very nice to know that you're one of the good good ones yeah but if you analyze this the structure not just of your own uh, investments but also the structure of how opposing systems of norms and opposing identities realize the same principle of subjecthood or subjectification. It doesn't actually, like the guarantee that you get, the sense of security that you get doesn't take you very far and it takes you precisely only to the boundaries of your own ideology and not right. beyond that. Right. So it's always like contingent on remaining within the fold and <laughs> uh, <laughs> professing belief and so on in the and the things that that shape you and also prevent you from shaping yourself. So there's, um, I think the notion of plasticity is super interesting in this way because Mm -hmm. when you read Sterner by himself or when you read Sterner in the context of like the Sterner-Marx debate is like a almost lie because Marx's text about Sterner was never published. So Sterner never had a chance to react to it. But if you read those disagreements, Sterner seems to extremely overestimate the his own ability to not just like psychologically reject all his socialization but also to then act in ways that are free from this kind of self-coercion and so on but on the one hand i think it's important to look at things like sort of the discovery of neuroplasticity and the way in which people have started thinking about our own plasticity differently in light of these new insights from the life sciences so just taking this as the backdrop against which we think about our own plasticity, I think is important and could create sort of like a fertile environment for rethinking Sterner's ideas or taking ideas up again that sort of weren't able to flourish in other uh, parts of the history of his reception. But also, well, yeah, there, there's, there's one thing, actually there's a good defense of why Sterner, Sterner sounds hyperbolic. So when he says that you are the center of your world and you own everything and the way in which he talks about this insurrection against ideology sounds very all or nothing. He's like, you have to get rid of all of these 
internalized normative concepts, ideally all of them at once with a giant whoop and so on. And this, the way that he describes the unique one is sounds a little bit like he's overestimating the power that we have. But there's also a good reason to do that, which is sort of an analogy to Pascal's wager. And it comes from second order cybernetics. It's the idea that if you have an agent and the agent is making choices about courses of action in the future, this entails some model of, of what the possible actions are, right? So if mm-hmm. I want to know whether I want to do A, B, or C, I have to know what A, B, and C are, and I choose one of those. If there's an alternative way of thinking about my my own capabilities that has A, B, C, D, and E, then having like the larger set of options will enable me to not accidentally constrain my own powers. Interesting. Yeah. There's this one sense in which like you get socialized and you internalize uh, norms about masculinity and about legality and so on. And that's something where you constrain your own ability to live out according to your own desires and to make yourself happy. But there's also another way, which is just, um, it's less obviously ideological, but it's more pragmatic in that if you are trying to map your own possible courses of action, underestimating your own abilities has an immediate effect of reducing your, your abilities as well. Right. By underestimating your own abilities, you're reducing them. But by overestimating your abilities, there might be some negative sides to that. But like you'll find out if you're not actually as powerful <laughs> as you thought. You'll right. find out soon enough. And yeah. the only way to find out is to try, you know, the only way yeah. to find out how, how far does self-empowerment go, how plastic am I really, what are the limits of who I can become? Like the, there's only one way to find out, right? And yeah. it's going to be, it's going to involve not just like an intellectual assessment of your own capacities that is very optimistic, but also like in a sort of effective sense, you have to, you have to believe that it's going to work. Otherwise it won't, like you have yeah. to feel it. I like this this notion because it, it kind of indicates that we can both overstate or overemphasize or overinvest in the I can versus the I cannot in that transcendental mm-hmm. sense that you brought up. And there's a way in which Sterner is kind of calling for a more, I don't want to say balanced approach, but thinking of those relations as metastable and not necessarily pre-given and not predetermined, specifically not predetermined from the outside. And it, it kind of it related to something I brought up with Cooper the other day when I was thinking about Stirner and you know self-determination, self-enjoyment, and these other things that he uh, is, is kind of putting forth, the creative nothing. And I was thinking about how this also goes kind of well with what you just said in terms of Freud's pleasure principle and reality principle. There is a sense where, where for example, when Stirner is talking about when I join a union of egoists, I may be losing certain freedoms, but I also gain others that may be more apropos to my liking. And, you know, given the fact that I can renegotiate or leave, this choice in trade-offs is always up to me and my own, my own whims or pleasures. And I was thinking about, you know, how that Sterner isn't merely just a champion of the pleasure principle. There is this sense in which the reality principle, I can forego certain immediate enjoyments in order to realize a, a sort of broader set of options, as you put it, or, or even a higher enjoyment down the road. And I think that that's, I think that the bugbear or the spook is in sort of, uh, you know, Freud's analysis of repetition. And I guess that that would be the the point is Sterner is trying to think through these ways in which we repeat without becoming conscious of it. And some of that is becoming aware of the ways in which we repeat to our own detriment, specifically due to these self-imposed, these internalized 
you know, I won't say the superego, obviously, but that we could mm-hmm. just as well say that these, these internalized duties and beliefs, these fixed ideas. And it kind of reminded me when you're saying that Cerner isn't against love, he's against sacred love as a duty. There is a sense in which I kind of resonate strongly with Cerner when I think about how we get to choose who we love. Even if we can fall in love, and that's a whole other thing, there are ways in which we can become aware of and take back a kind of ownership of whom we choose to love and not feeling like we sort of have to or we're falling short if we don't. And I think that has consequences too for for the family, for the nation, for the state, all these things, which I think for Sterner, we should we should be able to choose sort of our, our associations and not necessarily accept the those structures into which we are thrown. You know, we didn't choose to exist, but we do, right? It gets back to yeah. that social contract thing. I think uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. And especially the stuff about the families is interesting. Stirner is very much not a fan of marriage because to him, that's a good example of how something that starts as like a, a desire that you have uh-huh. and that you want to fulfill, like two people get together. And then marriage basically means that that thing becomes codified and it takes on this existence of of its own that constrains your behaviors and constrains your actual desires and your future desires and so on. But I think the way in which Sterner talks about pursuing your own happiness in free associations with others and with your environment doesn't have to be just people, but also like right. can go to the forest and enjoy that. And um trying to think of this way of living your life in which desire gets expressed in a variety of spontaneous forms instead of being always bound up and channeled through these pre-existing institutions that are extremely rigid and that also reroute most of the energy that gets put into them into their own reproduction, like uh, states and families and so on. That reminded me a little bit of uh, anti-Oedipus again. I think there are definitely some affinities there. We talked a little bit about this before we started, but this this surprising fact, and I was mentioning that maybe it was a good thing that the German ideology wasn't published in Stirner's Mm -hmm. lifetime or Marx's lifetime, because, you know, one of the, the quotes you cite from Marx and Engels on St. Max, as they call him, right, uh, on Mm -hmm. Stirner, is mocking Stirner's kind of view of sexuality as not necessarily having to be geared towards the reproduction of the species. Mm-hmm. And Marx and Engels kind of are castigating him as just, he just wants to masturbate. He wants to be polymorphously perverse. You know, he wants to have his little fetishes and he's, he's not thinking about the, the higher goal of sexuality. But yeah. I think that, that that in light of anti-Oedipus makes Marx and Engels' criticisms ring hollow and makes them come out as conservative by yoking sexuality directly to reproduction, which kind of gets us back to your point about abortion earlier, by sort of yoking sexuality to merely to reproduction. I think there's something even more conservative than even how Freud thought of sexuality, because for, for Freud, the pleasure attached to sexuality was the lure and almost the, the trick that the biological species had of reproducing itself. Not that sexuality should be subordinate to reproduction, but there was somehow with the pleasure, there is this lore that that makes it so that the pleasure attached, the surplus enjoyment ensures the reproduction of the species. Not that we should somehow dominate 
right. sexuality under reproduction. If that makes sense, how I'm kind of yeah, like well, a more contingent sexuality. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I absolutely love dunking on Marx and Engels, <laughs> but I think in this case, what they say is a little bit that like Sterner just wants to. He's just a basically a jerk off and uh, he doesn't <laughs> understand that like he also had a mom and a dad and that the way that humanity that mankind exists is by men and women having uh-huh. sex and procreating and forming and taking raising the children and so on and i think what, what's really happening is again that they are much of their critique is a little bit unsatisfying because i think they're just talking about something else so yeah i think they are talking about a different scale and the reason why or like part of why even freud's view of this is more satisfying is that Freud is at least talking about actual individuals and Marx and Engels are talking about like this, when they say a man, a woman and a child, these are like not actual individuals, but they're like schematic functions within a population. And, right. And edible triangles. Uh, right. Yeah. They, <laughs> and that's, again, this, this weird, um, it's a weird sort of textual dynamic where Marx and Engels are, castigating Stirner for operating within a different intellectual context or like with on a different scale. Obviously you can't hold Marx and Engels responsible for like everything that Marxists have thought and done, but there are definite, there are definite moments where you can see that like some of the conceptual logic of Marxism can lead to the worldview where you're just like, yeah, the individuals like don't actually matter. Like, we're trying to change the world here. We're trying to bring about a completely new phase in the history of humanity. And like individuals will get crushed under the wheel. That's just how it goes, you know? Yeah, I was thinking about how Scherner wouldn't necessarily be against, you know, raising children or wanting to have children, mm-hmm. but he might question where that desire comes from and if, if it is freely and wholly chosen or whether it is something that is more imposed and expected as a duty. And for a long time, even, and it still persists today, but for a long time, that has been the natural way of thinking about things. I still hear this shit from from friends about when I'm going to raise a family and it's like, that's not what I want to do. And that shouldn't necessarily be, I know people try to use that as an icebreaker, but it, it is kind of telling, you know, <laughs> yeah. when it is kind of like, oh, I haven't talked to you in a long time. What's a, how's your wife doing? When you, you know, how many kids you got? You, blah, blah, yeah. blah. You know, something interesting, just when you're, Elmo, when you're discussing kind of the different scales that they're working on mm-hmm. is that, you know, I've heard Sterner's described as first person communism or like the FPS of communism. Nice. Uh-huh. That's very cool. What, I had heard that one. What's really inter- interesting too is I don't know if it'd be worthwhile to read this letter, but there is a letter from Engels to Marx mm-hmm. discussing the unique in its property. And he kind of says, you know, I guess at the end of the day, like the main kind of event is that, like, at the end of the day, it does come down. There is an individuality to like communism, to like you're recognizing sort of your own, your own self interest relative to communism. Yeah. I think that's a super, that's actually a super good point. I, the letter is interesting. And so pretty soon after Engels wrote this letter to Marx, and we don't have Marx's response, but Engels was super excited about Schoen's book and says, well, there's some sketchy stuff in there, but in general, this seems like he's on the same, right? He's on the same track as we are. Right. And um, this whole thing about egoism, surely it must very soon, the egoism will just like uh, turn over into socialism. It's like a, like a phase transition or something. Yeah. Like a and, withering away or something even. 
There's the, one thing that's interesting is that the there's a weird combination where Marxists say that Stirner is bad because he's talking about self-interest, but then a big chunk of the Marxist story is about self-interest as well, right? Like, so the idea is that the working class will rise up and overthrow capitalism because it's in their own interest. And I think it's weird. They're pretty strong and widespread tendencies to read Marxism as like a moral enterprise. I never really got that. And I think maybe it's partly because I'm, because as, as a Sterner scholar, I'm very focused on like the 1840s. So I believe in the epistemological rupture as well and so on. I think that the manuscripts of 1844 are importantly different from the German ideology. I guess if you don't believe all of that, it's kind of easier to think that Marxism is like a, a moral project, but at least the way that the logic of class struggle is described is supposed to be like explicitly not a moralizing argument, but just like an analysis of the social forces and how they will develop. And then you get to a point where it's not even necessary. Like, why would you even want to disagree with Sterner? You already think like you're a Marxist, right? You think that the capitalists are working in their own interest. The working class is going to like pursue their own interest. And then what's going to happen is that this mode of production will be overthrown and so on. Sterner is also only saying that like people are, well, he doesn't say should, but he's just telling people like you can stop doing this other stuff and you can start acting in your own interest. Yeah. So if Marxists are actually right in their analysis of the interests of the working class, then every proletarian reading Sterner and stopping sort of like uh, expelling the capitalist and liberal ideology from their hearts and bodies right. would be like the best thing that could happen from a Marxist perspective, because then they would just like realize their true desires and their true interests, which would be to build communism. They'd be fine. So there's some, there's some ways in which like the project should be a lot more compatible than how the controversies, controversy sort of played out. And there's another thing that I, that I think is interesting, which isn't this letter by Engels, but it's the theses on Feuerbach, because they're also happening at precisely this moment. They're like in the spring of 1845. They've read Sterner's book. They know that they want to like, they probably have started thinking about how they can like get away from that. I'm not exactly sure about the micro history of the German ideology, but there's something I think in the thesis on Feuerbach. Well, first they're taking on board Sterner's critique of Feuerbach. And there's like, there's some people who believe that his inference was that important, but I'm of course convinced, but I'm also have an interest in being convinced that Sterner is important. So <laughs> yeah. But there's, there's cool literature on that, all of that stuff. But what happens in, which one is it? Is it the first one? Yes. So the, the chief defect of all hitherto existing materialism that a Feuerbach included is that the thing, reality, sensuousness, is conceived only in the form of object or of contemplation, but not as sensuous human activity practice, not subjectively. So what they really need is like a sensuous materialism. And back when I, when I first sort of in the context of first thinking about Stirner and the life sciences very broadly and thinking about what it might mean to have an account of material subjects so that the left that is literate and conversant in the life sciences can also talk about individuals in these terms. I thought that the sensuous materialism that they were calling for in the Fies of Feuerbach is super important and also never happened. So I think what you get later, because in the German ideology, they immediately move away from all these references to subjectivity and sensuality that sort of resonate more with the, the manuscripts of 1844, where they still talk about how the different senses are shaped by your working activity and so on. But 
there's like a deep and weird and interesting question there, which I think is also related to what materialism is. And the way that Esbach was, he, Wolfgang Esbach, one of the best Stirner scholars, he said that Marx and Engels at that time are inventing a materialism of relations. And there's a way in which their account of history as determined by class struggle, it's not materialism in the sense in which materialism is used like in philosophy by like 18th century French people, or when we talk about ancient philosophy and Adams, it's not a materialism of Adams really, despite the fact that Marx wrote his right. dissertation on ancient atomism. It is like something different. And it's not entirely clear how these different senses of materialism work together, where they come apart. But there's some something that has always been a problem for me is that materialism seems to have different components, where one of them is empiricist and which is to say about human experience and the other one isn't. So when you're asking for essentials materialism, that sounds to me like you want a materialism that is properly grounded in what is our the status of our concepts of matter is that these concepts are generated from subjective experience, from empirical investigation and our active engagement with the world, our like productive working on and in the world. And there's a nice sort of Marxist story to be told there, but the other half of materialism is commitment to reductionism. It's the idea that there are these smallest particles that we can't even see. So there's like one strain of materialism that is very much about our experience and one strain of materialism that is more like they say in the first thesis, contemplative, Mm. or it's more like a rationalist commitment to some method of reasoning where you think that the behavior of any system should be explained through the behavior of its parts. And if you look historically at uh, like the scientific revolution, you also can already see these two different strains that go into a materialist or mechanistic account of science. So on the one hand, you have human experience, which is the knowledge that is generated by people building machines. And there are these principles like levers and springs that inform the basics of a mechanistic and materialist philosophy. But on the other hand, you have a commitment to reductionism, which really refers to these imperceptible particles that are posited as parts of an explanation. And these these are sort of like run together as just like materialism, which mixes ontological commitments and methodological successes in a way that is like, that's unclear to me what's going on there. And then the relationship that Marxism has with that is also not super clear to me. But it's interesting to me that I firmly believe that subjective experience plays an important role there. And the fate of subjective experience and the exclusion of subjective experience from certain ways of conceptualizing both materialism in general and specifically Marxism as a materialist political philosophy, some potential got lost that maybe could be recovered if we can open up a role for subjective experience again in that story, which is like a vague and, and broad idea, but it's something that I used to think about. And then I got focused on like details and things I can actually write semi-coherent papers about, but I'm still, I think it's super refreshing to like go back to these bigger questions because like before you go to grad school, you're, you're like, what do people even mean when they say materialism? And then when you become in some ways like educated and professionalized, you stop asking certain kinds of questions that are like too big or too unwieldy to uh, fit into a dissertation project and so on. These questions can, even if you can't answer them satisfyingly, they can reorient like the actual projects that we pursue in ways that I think are super helpful. 
We actually read uh, Marx's dissertation as part of kind of to prepare. We had a, I don't know if you're familiar with Thomas Nail, but he has a book called Marx in yeah, Motion. Yeah, yeah, nice. That is very interesting that I think you might find, again, another kind of resonance with some of what you just were discussing relative to, to Marx and Engels. That is very cool. And Thomas now actually got onto my reading list to do last week, <laughs> oh, nice. not through Marx, but through Lucretius. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. yeah which is yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he also, uh, he, you guys share uh, essays in the, in the Deleuze and Anarchy volume. He's got an essay on, oh, um, nice. on ontological anarchism and and epistemological anarchism. I, I didn't get to read it. I was I was too focused on on preparing for you. Sorry, Thomas. Yeah, I need to I, I, I need to I've read go back Thomas, to Thomas. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I need but, to go back to that for sure because I had this experience when I was reading I read my own piece in Unchaining Solidarity and then I read some of the others and I definitely because like once once you're done writing something and you're done with a project you sort of start a bunch of other stuff. So by the time I got the book in the mail, I wasn't really in the right headspace to like sit down <laughs> for a few days and read all the other things but there's some super cool things uh, in here and I'm excited. And I think for the Deleuze one as well, I need to go back and there's a lot of uh, stuff to be learned in the other, other essays for sure. Yeah. I have a tiny tidbit because you sure. mentioned political Please. theology and this is not like, not really just like my personal insider reading, but I just wrote down some notes. So I think, I think you mentioned political theology because Saul Newman has written on it. And then you mentioned yes, right. another thinker who I wasn't familiar with. Yeah, it was Lorenzo Chiesa. Yes, exactly. But one thing that's interesting about Stirner, which I think many people don't know, is that Carl Schmidt actually was influenced by Stirner as well. And there's another book by this German scholar, Bernd Lasker, which I think has not been translated into English. It's called Katechon und Anarch, where Katechon is a figure from the Bible. Yes, yes. But plays a role in Karl Schmidt. So in the Bible, the Katechon is like a sort of soldier of God who's fighting against the devil around the end times when things are getting worse in the world. You know how like the things that the evangelicals love where things have to get really bad in order to yeah, yeah. Jesus can come back and the world will end. The Katechon is trying to like prevent the eschaton. Yeah, yeah. He, has this, he has this sort of a contradictory position in a way because he's one of the good guys, but also like his job is to prevent the thing that needs to happen from happening, Right. even though it will happen eventually anyway. But the interesting thing is that, so the Katechon part of the title is Schmidt and the Anarch is a figure in Ernst Jünger, also a Nazi. And both <laughs> yeah. of these have were influenced by Stirner or to some degree but also obviously had very different views about society and politics and so on. But there's an interesting thing in which I haven't really read, I haven't seen a lot of discussion of that, is that in some ways, Carl Schmitt is famous for his critiques of liberalism and for showing that in terms of political theology, a lot of the sort of way that power is operative in, in politics and the structures of a state and the way it works requires something that you might call is like an irrational exercise of power or like an irrational decisionism yeah. that definitely rejects the liberal conception of politics. And it is almost as if Schmidt and Stirner have a very similar analysis of how a liberal nation state actually works, but they draw completely opposite conclusions. Yes, so, yes, yes. So Schmidt is saying, well, the structure of the presumably secular liberal nation state is still religious at its core. And if we want to make the state function properly, we have to like buy into this religious element or this religious kernel. And Stern is saying, 
the state is still religious at its core and there's the underlying logic that connects the state to the subjectivities of its citizens is a religious logic so we have to get, get rid, rid of, of the state as well yeah. in yeah. order to actually be atheists and the, it's a, the book is interesting by by Laska he's a great scholar and a good writer everything always feels like a intellectual detective novel and then he tells us how in solitary confinement after the second world war while Carl Schmidt was awaiting trial at Nuremberg was one of the few situations in which he actually wrote about Stirner. He wrote about Stirner in his diary, where he has a section titled Ex Captivitatis Salus. So like out of captivity, he got saved. I don't know. I can't think of the noun for, for that in English, but he says that Stirner or like Saint, maybe he even calls him Saint Max. He says like the poor Max is the only one who visits me in these lonely days in my cell, but also... <laughs> Having read him as a young man prepared me for so much of what was to come or something like that. And it's it's interesting and, and vague, but like in a in a kind of suggestive way. Yeah, we discussed and, a little bit of this with Saul <laughs> Newman about, about how mm-hmm. Sterner, why was it Sterner that, that came and, and visited him? Because you mm-hmm. can imagine that oh, would nice. be that would be kind of a torment in a certain way, because as you pointed out, they draw diametrically opposite conclusions and it's interesting that the real enemy that Schmidt is trying to ward off is the anarchist, not really the, the liberal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the interesting things about Laska is that he generally has a sort of like Freudian reading of Stirner as well. And he his way of investigating the history of Stirner's reception is by finding ways in which he's been repressed by others. So he thinks that Marx <laughs> and Nietzsche both repressed Stirner. Yeah. And uh, Schmidt also like, they all found their little way of repressing Sterner. And it makes a little bit... And Reich makes too, s- I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, Reich is also one of these guys. I think Reich, when he was... I'm not sure whether it was Reich or Landauer, but like one of those when they he was very young, signed some essays that he wrote with Michael Kaspar Schmidt, which was like Sterner's civilian name. And, I think that oh, was okay, Landauer. Yeah. That okay. was Landauer, not Reich. But like Reich definitely was strongly influenced by Sterner, but like didn't really talk about it. And in his diary, he wrote like, oh, Sterner the God who saw in 1844, what we don't, what the doctors don't see today or something like that. <laughs> oh, that's so amazing. Cool. Well, what amazing so, quote. That's great. So Sterner's kind of the boogeyman that, that yeah. haunts everybody. He becomes the spook <laughs> of all the par excellence. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes the ultimate spook. Sterner, Sterner is like the problematic fave for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Elmo, is there anything you want to plug to alert our audiences about maybe some future work you've got coming out, some forthcoming well, work? I wish uh, I'm going to try to write more about this connection between Stern and the life sciences or the way of reading Stern through the life sciences. I don't have anything really that I can really advertise at this point, except of course, for the the essay and uh, Taylor, thank you so much for making me actually say a few things about it because I just got too excited about other stuff, uh-huh. but I think it's really, I'd be really happy for people to read my essay uh, of the title. Ethics of the Care for the Brain, Neuroplasticity yes. with Stirner, Malabu, and Foucault in the amazing volume Unchaining Solidarity on Mutual Aid and Anarchism with Catherine Malabu. And please, if you have any questions or reactions or you liked it or didn't like it, let me know. That would be amazing. I always love to hear what people think. And just to let the audience know, if they don't have money to spend on a volume, you can find it on Libgen. So <laughs> there is that. I checked. So <laughs> there's there's no excuse not to be able to to go and read uh, Malibu's essay, uh, which is on the politics of plasticity, and read Elmo Fighton's essay, which we just mentioned. And uh, oh, I also want to I want to plug yeah. uh, Eugene Eugene Kochinov in the same 
in the same volume. Okay. The great guy. And also the, I talked to him before I hadn't actually read his chapter and he also writes extremely well, which is uh, not, he writes mostly in Russian. So I didn't know, but this one is amazing as well. Yeah. And it's about Kropotkin and plasticity is very cool. It's Excellent. called Mutual nice. Aid Armature Plasticity All the Way Down. We'll have to give him credit for writing well, which is something that sometimes gets overlooked as an academic, you know, aspect, but also give, give some credit to the, the translator, since I assume there was a, a translation from the Russian, right? I think he wrote it himself in English. Okay, great. Sure, but, um, well, yeah. then, then, then fuck the translator. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, but that, 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 okay, that's good. Uh, what was his name again? Eugene, what was Eugene Kutch. Kuchinov, which is a K-U-C-H-I-N-O-V here. I'm not sure whether it's always translated okay. in the same way. But... Kuchinov. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah I'll, cool. I'll look at that since I have the volume. So check out Elmo's work there. And also for the Deleuzians, since we I know there's some of them in the audience, you can check out his work in uh, Deleuzian Anarchy, which came out in 2019, also on LibGen, for those of you on a budget. And a lot of your work is on your academia.org page. So yeah. you can also mm, go there. Almost. And... I think everything is sort of on there. And if you want anything that I've written and you don't find it, I will send it to you by email if you email me. Should we plug your Twitter just in case people want sure, to find yeah, you on that's, Twitter? That's great. I always need more followers. And I think my <laughs> at is at, at Tim underscore Elmo. Is it correct? Yes. Yeah, I think that nice. that's what it is. And we'll put that in the we'll put yeah, that in the show I'll link I'll link your academia page and um, your Twitter account great. as well. Thank you. Yeah, cool. Thank you so much for having me, guys. This well, Elmo, we really appreciate yeah, absolutely. you coming on. Uh, this has been I mean, this this has opened up a lot of avenues. And um, the one thing I would say in terms of the life sciences, something, someone that I've wanted to dive into with Cooper in the future, although we have a long list too, <laughs> yeah. is uh, the work of uh, Henri Atlan. I'm not sure if you've heard of I him. I have not heard this. So Henri Atlan, I became familiar with him through Deleuze and Guattari's A Thousand Plateaus, where they uh-huh. discuss his work. Uh, some of his work should be on Libgen, at least his like, selected writings on life sciences, Spinoza, Jewish mysticism. And he's also kind of, he's got a two volume series called Sparks of Randomness. That's what I would look at just to add to your, you want more <laughs> to add to your list. Just add that yeah. to your list. Henri that Atlan. is the, the biophysicist, right? Biophysicist yeah, and philosopher. He, Good. He's a biophysicist. I, he may still be alive. I don't know. According uh, to Wikipedia, he is. And he, I'm all, immediately seeing all the right words. It says <laughs> Heinz, Heinz von Förster, Francisco Varela. Yeah, yeah, cybernetics. yeah. So, so just, just, all the someone, good stuff. just someone to add to your list. And <laughs> Thank uh, you. you can pair him with Simon Doan. I think that they think that Deleuze and Guattari write of him very interestingly and draw upon his work, specifically with like self-organization, yeah. which was something that you brought up oh. early in the talk. Maybe uh, this is just like an aside, but I think you guys will like it. I actually, I'm struggling always to read Deleuze and get stuff out <laughs> of him, even though I'm convinced that it's, I read Deleuze and Guattari and I'm like, I know this is the shit. Like, I know that I need to read this, <laughs> but I also have a really hard time, like understanding it and explaining, especially explaining to others what exactly it is I'm getting out of it. Yeah. And my new thing is that I'm like very excited about some people in the life sciences. I'm like, this person should read Deleuze. But <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's very hard to convince them to do that. And so I'm trying to form some sort of reading group that will involve at least half non-philosophers. And uh, I want them to explain Deleuze to me, basically, yeah. or something yeah. like that. I think there needs to be some like lower threshold translatability between people who work in complexity in the life sciences and Deleuze and Guattari. And um, 
I have some ideas. I'm trying to make people do that work for me. Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And that's, that's one of the reasons why we've had, and we're going to have more Deleuze scholars on is to, nice. is to try to crack open that egg and make it more accessible. And uh, one of the, the writers, and we can kind of finish here, especially his earlier writings, he's got tons of essays on it. The one Deleuzean who's taken most seriously Deleuze in the life sciences is John Pertevi. Oh, so yeah, absolutely. It, so, so that would be another, for those interested in Deleuze and life sciences connection, I would definitely recommend John Pertevi's work, who's kind of been consistently writing on this topic for the mm -hmm. last few decades. I also recommend his, uh, he has a, I like these tiny books. It's the same series as Dark Deleuze, I think, right. about Purdue. This is called Edges of the State. Yeah, Forerunners. Which is also extremely cool. Yeah. Yeah, Forerunners. the Forerunner series is great. And we had John on yeah, we to had talk on. about Edges of the State. And, uh, you know, he's a he's a good guy. He's, but again, I, I assume with all the Deleuze books coming out from Edinburgh, there may be a Deleuze and Life Sciences book that I'm just yeah. not sure about. I know there's one on ecology, but off the top of my head, but I would bet money there is one. There's a whole industry of Deleuze yeah. and books. That's Not to true. disparage the one that you're in, Deleuze and Anarchy. <laughs> that's just that's just Edinburgh yeah. is, is providing a service, I think, because I doubt they're making bank on on, on I, their Deleuze yeah. books. I'm really a fan of these tiny books, also because I'm better at reading them than the <laughs> But also, Agreed. I'm a, I have sort of this dream of writing a book for forerunners that will be called Neuroanarchism. So. Guys, if you're listening wow. to this, send, send me an email. <laughs> I awesome. probably would have to email them, I assume, but I'm not quite ready yet. But I think maybe maybe another another paper in which I want to talk more about the links I see between Stirner's notion of creative nothingness and the self-positing and self-dissolving and accounts of self-organization, the life sciences, yeah. both like in the autopoiesis and later concepts in an activism, but also Michael Anderson has a account of the brain that is like a radical counter proposal to this what people call boxology so often neuroscience sounds as if individual tiny parts of the brain just have a single function that they do and you stick them all together and then they, that's where your psyche comes from and it's actually not like that instead michael anderson talks about a lot about neural reuse and about these like tr transient uh, locally organized neural networks and transitorily assembled local neural networks i think talents anyway i think that there are some um pretty cool concepts out there that one can use to it's almost like visualizing what stern is doing in a way that um makes him show up in a contemporary understanding of life yeah so that's what i'm excited about and and now you know in your future paper too i know you said you wanted to write more about the neuroplasticity side you can cite your own paper as just kind of <laughs> as, as as a sequel i've seen uh i've seen someone like you brought up adrian johnston i've seen him do something like this where the first few pages of a long article will be citing himself he's like well i've already talked about this here yeah. here and here so go look at that shit before you keep reading and nice. i i both love and hate that but you know mm -hmm. that's just the way it is that's the nature of the yeah. beast when you're uh, exploring yeah. some of these complex topics which we're again so glad that we had you on today to sort of help us dive into this and we look forward to your to your future work and we hope to have you back on the show to to talk about it yeah, thank you so much. That would be amazing. As as soon as I've written something, I'll definitely <laughs> send it to you, and then you you can read it and think about whether this is so something you want to talk about. Yeah, I'm sure it will be. I'm sure it will be. We appreciate cool. you coming on the show. Cooper and I are uh, always happy, and especially when we can reach out to someone with whom we've we've previously talked and interacted with. That's always kind of a bonus. Yeah, nice. Once yeah. again, thanks to 
Elmo Fighten for joining us on this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Thank you.